Welcome to the Alcorn Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. We've been in a sermon series over the last few weeks called Taking the Church Back, and so today we pick up right where we left off the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, and we'll be in verses 12 through 17. And so the reason why, why, why we call this taking the church back is because um, there are so many misconceptions about the church and there's so much bad press about the church. But, but what better way to see how we, are, how we should function as Christians than to see what Jesus has to say to churches. Jesus writes letters to seven different churches. And, and so each letter contains something different, but in each letter, there's something beneficial for all churches. And so as we read through this, there are some things that are, that are, that are so true to our church, personally to us, but there are things that are there that, that maybe we don't struggle with, but, but it's good for us to know in advance in case that comes up. And so he covers several things. And, and, and the most important thing that the main theme is that, that in the midst of a hostile culture, he expects his churches to be faithful. This is what God is looking for, for, for us. He's, he's looking from us. He's looking, for, he's looking for his church to be faithful. He's looking for his church to endure. He's looking for his church to remain a church, even if it becomes uncool and unpopular to be a Christian and to go to church. Amen. And so we're going to read today um, Romans 2, verses 12 through 17. Now, we've been reading together, so, so I want to give... I don't want to laugh at you today, so I want to give you the correct pronunciation of a couple words that you're going to read today. Now, I'm not solely confident that even once I give them to you that you're going to pronounce it right, but that's okay, right? No, no judgment here, but we want everybody to read, all right? And, and so the church that we're reading about today, if you, re- if you look at it, you probably think that says Pergamum, right? It's, it's not that. It's Pergamum. Let's say it all together. Pergamum. Come on, let's do it together, class. Pergamon. All right, all right. C students are becoming B students. All right. Okay, there's another name in there. You're going to think it's Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans. It's not Nicolaitans, all right? It's Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans. Oh, you're going to say, okay, all right, good. Let's say, every, y'all got it. Y'all save right here. I need the unsaved over here to get it together. <laughs> Let's say it together, unsaved with the saved. Nicolaitans. Say it again. Nicolaitans. Man, y'all going to read y'all Bible to y'all coworkers, and they're going to be like, whoa, you really saved. <laughs> Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Herb, I'm not convinced that they're going to get this. So I need you to be really loud, all right? Revelation 2, 12 through 17. Read. Got those. <laughs> Y'all doing good. Good. Come on, keep going strong. Amen. Give yourselves a hand for that wonderful reading this morning. I was worried, but y'all did all right this morning. Y'all, y'all did all right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity just to share in your word. 
even, even if it means pronouncing some words incorrectly, Lord, we thank you. Uh, Lord, we, we know that your word is alive. And so, Father, we just, we pray today that your word would, would radically change us, that your word would make us new, that it, that it would transform us to be who it is that you've called us to be. And so today, God, we just, we just pray that, that today is not a, com- that a it's common Sunday. We pray that it's uncommon. We pray that you do something in our hearts that you've never done before. And so, Father, we just thank you today. We praise you. We honor you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said amen. You may be seated. From the sermon series, Taking the Church Back, our sermon title today is The End of the Story is better. The end of the story is better. In the 90s, one of, one of my favorite movies uh, was, a, was a movie that contained, contained some singing, some music. Now, now, I am not a person who enjoys cinema with singing. Uh, I, I, I don't enjoy West Side Story. I, I don't enjoy uh, a musicals if I'm being honest, but there was one movie that wasn't a musical, but it had some music in it that I really enjoyed in the 90s. It was a part two of a movie um, called Sister Act Two. Now, now, if you are an a, a 80s baby uh, or maybe an early 90s baby, th- this, was a, this was a great movie. Um, it, if, you, if you enjoy movies, you, you had this on VHS, you, you had this on VHS. You, you didn't have this on Blu-ray. You, don't, you didn't stream this. You had this on a VHS cassette with a VCR in the name of Jesus. And, and so what I, what I love about this movie was this one particular scene. The movie uh, stars a couple people, but the main person who you will know is, is Lauren Hill. Lauren Hill, a young Lauren Hill is in this movie, and, and, and the premise is that She's in this Catholic school with, with, with the uh, brothers and the sisters, with the nuns and, and some of her uh, unsavory friends. And they, they are at this Catholic school and, and they are in the chorus together. The movie also stars uh, Whoopi Goldberg, um, who, who's like the main nun in the movie. Uh, but, but, but the thing is, is that Lauren Hill uh, is a singer, but her mother does not believe that her future should be in singing. Her mother is actually trying to push her to be something a little more like a teacher or something of that, of that regard. But, but she's really gifted at singing, but she's under her mother's authority. And so, so one of the, the premises of the movie is, is that is she going to obey her mother who wants her to be what her mother wants her to be, or is she going to... Uh, be the singer that she's obviously gifted to be, that God has gifted her to be. And so my favorite scenes in the movie is, is she's sitting at a piano and, and she's been getting into it with the nuns and she's sitting at a piano with one of her friends. And the friend also a, a real singer in real life. Her name is Tanya Blunt. She was a singer in the 90s, right? And they're sitting at this piano and one of the nuns walk in as they, they're having this conversation, but they don't see the nun. And, and they're playing the piano and her friend convinces her to sing, his eye is on a sparrow with her. And man, it was the most heavenly sound you ever could hear in your life. I, I was just drawn in. At that point, I had to see the end of the movie. I didn't like Sister Act 1, and so I really wasn't really trying to feel Sister Act 2. But once, once that scene came with Lauren Hill and Tanya Blunt sitting at the piano singing the song, I was, I was all in. And, and this was just towards the middle of the movie. And so I'm thinking, if this middle part that I'm seeing is this good, I got to wait to the end for the climax of the movie. And at the end of the climax of the movie, this kid by the name of Ryan Toby, uh, who eventually would go on to sing in a group called City High. If you weren't born in the 90s or 80s, you don't know anything about City High. But, but never mind, you would probably know Ryan Toby because Ryan Toby is actually the person who wrote the song where Usher thing went viral. And he was saying, oh, 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 oh. that's actually, that's, that's. That's, that's, that's actually, huh? 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 That's, that's, that, that, that's actually, that's actually Usher just following a reference track from Ryan Toby. 
The, whole, the runs and everything is all Ryan Toby. So, so he's in the movie too. And, and at the climax, Ryan Toby is singing. And, and this is the climax of the movie. But what drew me in was the middle. This part with, with, with Lauren Hill and Tanya Blunt because it was just a foretaste and a precursor. And because of this moment, it, it kind of catapulted Lauren Hill to refuse what her mother was trying to make her conform to and actually be what she was called to be. And this is kind of what we have in this story of the church at Pergamum. And, and so they are in Pergamum. And here's what you need to know about this. There is an Acropolis. We have a picture. We should have a picture on the screen so you can see it. There was this Acropolis, this citadel in Pergamum that, that sat on a hill that, that you could see from a distance. And, and, and so the, if you can look at that picture, way off in the distance, up on that hill, is this huge building that you can see. That's a citadel. It's, a, it's an Acropolis. And, and right next to that, you can kind of see it pointing out that that's probably the altar to a god by the name of Zeus, right? The, the, these people live in pagan idolatry. And so, so there's this Acropolis, this citadel on the hill, and then there's the altar to Zeus right there. And then there's a large complex for the worship of, of Isol who was a God that was known for healing. And so people from all around the world would go worship at this altar if they were sick because they wanted some kind of healing from the God of healing. And, and, and so this is all right there on the citadel. But most importantly, Pergamon was the first city to build a temple to Caesar. He, he, they built a temple to Caesar Augustus. A Caesar was just like our president or, or a prime minister. And so he had an altar that was erected to him right there on top of the hill on this Acropolis it's in, in per Pergamum. And so what happened was the people not only worship all of these other gods, but here they actually worship the Caesar because in that citadel, on that citadel was the seat of the Roman government. The seat of the Roman government in Asia Minor was actually in Pergamum. And so it was only natural for them to worship the Caesar more than any of the areas or the churches that we will talk about. And so this is what is going on there. They're worshiping the emperor. It'd be like you and I worshiping the president of the United States of America. And so they had what's called the imperial cult there. Everybody worshiped the imperial cult. If you wanted to win favor, if you wanted to have a name for yourself, if you wanted to be popular, then you worship just like everybody else. And so oftentimes wealthy families would have banquets and gatherings so that people could come over and worship the emperor, this was normal. This was the seat of government. If you were here a couple weeks ago, if Ephesus, if Ephesus was, was New York City because of the way they did business, then, then Pergamum was Washington, D.C. It's a political place. And you worship the emperor if you live there. This is a stronghold for worship of the emperor. And so th th this is all kinds of idolatry. And so when Jesus says, I know where you live, he says this in verse 13, if you look at your Bible, he says, I know where you live. And guess where, how he describes Pergamum, where Satan's throne is. You live in the city where Satan takes his throne. You don't live in some outside city. You don't live in some, some outside place. You live where Satan's throne is, right? Like if, you, if you're from Orlando, right, you're from Orlando, but you, uh, maybe you live in Oviedo and your family from out of town think, thinks you live right uh, next to Disney World, but you live in Oviedo. You live in, you live in Altamont Springs, but all your family knows is that you live where Disney is. That, that's like the other cities. But these people are living like in Kissimmee, where Disney really is. And this is what's going on in Pergamum. They, they live right where Satan's throne is. They don't live on the outskirts. They live right where Satan's throne is. And if you live right where Satan's throne is, then imagine the spiritual warfare and the pressure that you face every day to be a Christian. 
Imagine that. Imagine that, 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 that you live right where Satan's throne is. Can you, can you imagine the, the hostility? Can you imagine the evil that you have to experience every day, the pressure to compromise? This is what is going on in the church at Pergamum. There's a serious pressure to compromise. And for all of my note takers, there are two ways in which the church at Pergamum were faced with pressure to, to compromise their faith. Number one, it was accommodation, accommodation to false religions. Number two, it was deception, false teaching. So number one, the, the, the main pressure, number one, was just accommodate, accommodate to what everybody else is doing. Please, you live here, you might as well do what we're doing. Number one was accommodation, and number two was deception. Deception meaning, did, really, did God really mean what he said, or should we look at these scriptures another way? Surely God would accept the God of forgiveness will forgive you if you capitulate and you accommodate. So there are two pressures accommodation, and deception. And so you may not know this, but those two are actually tied together because what you believe actually affects how you will live. What we truly believe about God and what he said in his word is actually revealed in how we live. Yes, you may confess one thing, but how you live actually conveys how you actually believe. Yes, I believe everything that God says about, about relationships. Really? Do you? Even the parts about sexuality? Do you, do, you, do, you, do, you, do you give a sit to it with your mouth? Or is that how you actually live? You, you know, in, in, in antiquity, in the Bible, when a person knew something, you know, we can know something. But to know in the Bible meant I actually lived out what I said I believed. If I did not live out what I confessed with my mouth, I was, an actual, I was a fool. But, but to actually, for someone to say, I know something, I know it meant that you not only knew it cognitively, you knew it experientially, right? And so th these, are, these are the things that are happening. So, so what we believe has a direct effect on how we live. I know that God said he would supply all my needs, but I still struggle with trusting him. I know what the scripture says, but does my life really reflect that I, I believe that God will supply my needs? And so here's what he says to the church at per Pergamum. And this is beautiful because he starts off with a commendation. He commends them. And here's what he says in verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, Yet you are holding on to my name and you didn't deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you where Satan lives. And here's what I want to say. We, we've learned this before because Jesus says that, that he walks among the churches. He knows that even the church at Pergamum, that they live in a place of deep and extreme pressure and temptation. Their plight their experience, that what they go through every day is not lost on God. If your job is hard, if family life is a struggle, if your finances are acting funny, God knows. He is not lost on your struggle. He is not lost on your plight. Whatever the thing is in your life right now that is eating you up on the inside, God knows. God knows this. This is good news for us. He, he walks among us and sees our struggles. He sees the temptation that we face every day. But he says, you guys are holding on to my name. He, he says, even Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you. Apparently, there was an ordeal in Pergamon where there was a disciple of Jesus by the name of Antipas who, for some reason or another, stood for his faith, and it cost him his life. He actually died for his faith. The only casualty that we read about in the letter to these seven churches is this gentleman by the name of Antipas. Like it's one thing for, it to, for, for there to be this theoretical idea that, that, that there's persecution and something might happen to me uh, because of my faith. 
But it gets real in the field when one of your own dies because they stood up for their faith. And Jesus calls him a faithful witness that even under the threat of death, he held on to my name and he calls him a faithful witness. The, the word faithful witness there is rooted in the form of a word that we get the word martyr from. It's someone who, who believes so strongly that they are willing to give their life for their faith in Christ. Matter of fact, Revelation 1, 5, the fifth verse in the book of Revelation, guess what? Jesus is referred to as a faithful witness. Wouldn't it be beautiful? If we were referred to how Jesus was referred to, it's not uncommon for early Christians to lose their lives because of their faith. John reminds us in this, of this. When we get to Revelation 6, verse 9, here's, here's what he says. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony that they had been had given. They died because of their faith. They refused to capitulate. We get to Revelation 12, 11. He says, they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the point of death. They were, they were holding on to the name of Christ in, in spite of a real threat. One, one historian says that at the time of this writing, Christians were accused of or could be accused of disloyalty to the emperor. But the only way that they can get out of this is if they curse the name of Jesus. Roman officials would confront Christians at times and require them to do the, make a verbal denial of Christ and call out to the Roman God, even if you don't believe it. Just make an exception. Just, just make an accommodation. Or you can call on the name of Jesus and the name of the emperor. You see, what I need you to understand is first century Christians were not persecuted solely for their faith in Christ. They were persecuted for their exclusive faith in Christ. There's a difference. There's one thing to be persecuted because you are a believer, but it's only because you're a believer and you won't worship anything else. That is the problem. This is what I need you to get in these letters. It's not that they had a problem with, with them being Christian. They, were, they, were, they believed in syncretism where you can worship some, some, some of everything. Put, put, just make a spiritual buffet and worship whatever works for you in this season. But they refuse, even if it meant saving their lives. How committed do you got to be to God that even if it means death, you stick to the script? They wouldn't accept any other Lord except for Jesus. This is real commitment. To deny their faith would have meant that, here's what it would have meant if they denied their faith. They would have believed, it would have conveyed that they believe that this life is better than the life that Jesus offers them. Sad thing is, is this is how we live today. No, we don't live in a country where we may be killed for what we believe about Christ, that the threat of death is not there, but there is a threat to compromise our biblical worldview, that, that the world oftentimes offers us a way that looks more promising than the way of Jesus, that, that the wide road looks good to us. The wide road of how we deal with our money looks good to us. The, the, the wide road of sexuality looks good to us. The wide road of success and making life all about me and how I can please myself and get things for me and come up for myself and get it out of the mud for myself and, and put myself up by my own bootstraps. That wide road looks good to me. But Jesus offers a narrow road. And we have to make a decision. Do you want the, the wide road that feels good in the moment but ultimately kills you? Or do you want the narrow road that may seem harder at the outset but promises a better eternal life on the end? This is, these are the decisions that we have to make. And this is what the church at Pergamum was dealing with. So the call was for them to be faithful. The second thing that they were dealing with was this idea of false teaching. Would you look at verses 14 through 15? Here's what Jesus says to them. He commends them for, for not denying the faith and holding on to his name. But then he says, I got, I got some issues with you. I have a few things against you, actually. 
you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And so here's what's happening. Some in the congregation were holding on to these hodgepodge of Christianity and pagan worship. There there is this idea of syncretism, meaning that you combine different religions. Syncretism is I'm combining Christianity with something else, right? There there are some people who say, well, I like the Bible has some good teachings in there, but I I also like some of the stuff in the Quran too. I I, I like some of the stuff that Jesus says, but I don't don't believe some of that stuff that he's talking about. I kind of actually love this. I like this this Buddhist, this this Buddhist idea of of you put out whatever you put out and you get get back whatever you put out. I I like that. I like that. So I I, I mix that in with my Christianity. I I believe that that, that I can, whatever words I put out there in the atmosphere is going to create a, the universe is going to give me something back. But I also believe that Jesus died for my sins. And I like to mix the two. And what you don't know is that's called syncretism. You're mixing two things that don't go together. And so he references Balaam and Balak. Who is he talking about? He's referencing something in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers. Israel was in the wilderness. And they came to an area of the the Midianites, an area called Moab. And and the king of Moab was a gentleman by the name of Balak. There was a local seer, S-E-E-R there, a a pagan prophet of sorts by the name of uh, Balaam that was there. If you read the story, Numbers 22 through Numbers 25, if you read the story, the Israelites are going through the wilderness and Balak, the king of the Moabs sees the Israelites and he's like, it's a bunch of them. It's far more of them than us. And I don't want them to come over here and conquer our land. It's a lot. It's a, it's a, it's a lot of them over. They don't die. They multiply. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a lot of them. Right. And, 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 and so he's like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to call this, this psychic, this seer, this palm reader, This person who reads Zodiac signs, I'm going to call him and tell him to put a curse on the Israelites. And so Balaam hears that Balak is trying to summon him to come and put a a, a curse on him. And and so Balak says, tell Balaam, I'll pay him a divination fee. I'll pay him to put a curse on the Israelites. But something happened. Although Balaam is not a Christian, he's not a follower of Yahweh, God's speaks to him. God speaks to him and tells him, do not do what Balak is telling you to do. Instead of cursing my people, I want you to bless my people. And so this happens time and time again with the king of Moab. Like, what is happening? You're supposed to work for me. I'm trying to pay you. And Balaam is like, you don't have enough money to pay me to curse God's people because God told me not to. Because sometimes even a pagan will obey God. Some of us have family members that don't believe, don't go to church. They're not a believer, as we would know a believer to be. But there's some stuff they don't play with God about. This is what's happening with Balaam. But this story doesn't end. And so what Balaam does do, because God won't allow him to put a curse, he deceives them. He deceives them by sending Midianite women into the camp of the Israelites to seduce them. And although they fall victim to anything else, they fell victim to seduction and sexuality by these women. And you may say, well, okay, what's the big deal? The big deal is that God judged them for that. And God struck down 25,000 Israelites because they slept with unsaved pagan women when they were not supposed to. What got them was deception. And the reason why he's bringing that up is that in an environment like the one in, per- in Pergamum, there is these temptations, number one, to eat food, uh, eat meat, sacrifice to idols, which would have been offered up to the pagan gods, and also to commit sexual immorality. But here's the thing. 
They didn't tell him, hey, I want you to walk away from your faith in Christ. We just want you to do what we do too. Be a Christian, but also live how we live. If we get drunk, yeah, I know Jesus said don't get drunk with wine. We get that Ephesians 5 stuff. We're not telling you that you can't believe it. You can believe it, but you can do what you need to do. Because doesn't your God say he's a God of forgiveness? Didn't he say he'll forgive you? Don't you believe that part? Yeah, 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 you're not supposed to sleep with somebody that's, that you're not married to. Yeah, 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 we get that. But they're trying to kill you, and I'm trying to get you to figure out how they're not going to kill you. You know you want to do it anyway, so just satisfy yourself. It's cool. You can do the thing. It's all right, because doesn't your God say that he'll forgive all your sins if you confess them? I mean, that's what grace is all about, right? Just a little compromise a little compromise. I'll tell you this, folks. A little compromise will kill you. Because Christians were forbidden from participating. The, the aim here is cultural accommodation. Just do what everybody else is doing. I know you guys know what the rainbow is, and it's a promise from God that He'll never destroy the earth again. But why are you on social media? Just throw up a little rainbow flag. Do a little cultural accommodation. Come on. Your God believes that all people are made in the image of God. So if you support this one social cause, it's not a big deal, really. It really is his rainbow, but you can do it for what we mean it for too, right? Go ahead and put that rainbow up on your social media right next to a scripture. Just a little, a little compromise. Come on, everybody at your job is doing it. You do want that promotion, don't you? Your supervisor goes and his supervisor goes. So if you go and you do the thing at the networking thing and get tossed up, you do the thing, you don't like what you make right now, do you? But if you just maybe put yourself in the right environment with the right people and do what the right people are doing, maybe that'll make your career go from here to here. What's it going to cost you? Because you want to get in this position to make change for the kingdom of God, right? Because when you make more money, even if you compromise here, you'll be able to give more to the church. As if God needs your dirty money. A little compromise. Come on, just a, just a little bit. But that's not the only compromising. There's also compromising even in the word of God. Here's what I want to... You can't serve God and something. You cannot serve God and. That does not work. Let me, let, let, here's what Jesus said in Luke 4, 8. He says, and Jesus answered him, talking about Satan. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. If you got a Bible, I want you to underline one word, only. God plus. Do some math for you. God plus equals Godless. God plus equals Godless. And so there are two things that the church has to do. Number one, hold fast to the faith. I want you to write that down. Two things the church has to do. Number one, hold fast to the faith. Here's what I want you to know. Why do we have to do all this stuff? That's hard. Let me give you some context. I hope this blesses your life. The church is called to show the world ahead of time what God's redeemed and reconciled society can look like when we pursue God's righteousness, joy, and peace. Remember I told you at the outset about the movie, about Sister Act 2, how, how that little piece in the middle of the movie was so good, it made me want to stick around to see the end of the movie. If the middle was good, it paled into comparison to the climax of the movie. So we as believers, we're Lauren Hill and Tanya Blunt just 
sitting there singing, his eyes on a sparrow. And when the world sees us and they see us living for the Lord and they see us living and pursuing righteousness and they see us living in peace together and they see us turning the other cheek and they see us loving and praying for our enemies, they are to say, man, it is something about those Christians and their God that I want to be a part of. I got to commit to that because if that is what it looks like now, I can't imagine what the end is going to be. So we give, them a, we give them a little glimpse of heaven in the now. God is not trying to re- suppress you with all these rules and oppress you with all these rules and regulations. God is doing this because we as believers are called out people who are supposed to show the world what it looks like to follow God. If we did what God says, we would be so attractive to the world. Think about this. God doesn't want us to lie, right? What if we demonstrated to the world what it looks like to live in honesty. Can you imagine the, the implications for our culture at large? If everybody wanted to be like the Christians and be honest, there'll be no more lying in politics. There'll be no more lying at your job. There'll be no more false promises because people would take their word seriously. Can you imagine if, if, we, if we did what, what Jesus says and refrained from adultery? The marriage numbers wouldn't look so bleak. What if we did what Jesus says about sexuality? There'll be no more sexually transmitted diseases. The struggle, no condemnation. There would be no decisions to make about a child out of wedlock. Because we're doing it in the right context. We're doing it. How many lives would we save if we just did what God says? But we have the world's perspective where we think God is trying to keep us from something good. God is not trying to keep you or rob you of any joy. God wants to give you joy, but God's joy comes in God's context. He's trying to save our lives and lead us to life, but the world distorts it and leads us to destruction. Yeah. This is what happens. We are living in a way to give people an encounter and picture of the living God and a foretaste of the life with God that is to come for those who come into a relationship with his son. I want to read this to you. If you don't understand what I'm saying about sin, I hope this resonates with you. There is a theologian who once said this. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And this is what he's calling them out of. And this is what he's warning them about. And the only way we can maintain is to hold on to our faith. 1 John 5, 3-4 says this, For this is what Love for God is to keep his commands and his commands are not a burden because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world. Our faith. Hold on to it. Victory is in our faith. So if the first thing is for us to hold fast to our faith, the second and final thing is for us to reject What is faith? What is fake? Hold fast to the faith. And number two, reject what is fake. And what I'm talking about is false teaching. There was a time where Jesus, uh, not Jesus, but, but Paul was talking to the Ephesian elders. Remember, we talked about Ephesus the first week, right? And, and, and Jesus, not Jesus, but Paul, uh, when he is about to leave Ephesus, And, and he's with the pastors of the church at Ephesus. He gives them a specific warning. And here's what Paul tells them about. He's about to leave them, but he knows something is going to happen as soon as he leaves. It's inevitable that this is going to happen. This is why we have to guard from false teaching and we have to reject what is fake. Here's what Paul says, Acts 20, verses 28 through 31. Here's what he says. So keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock which the Holy Spirit has placed in your care. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he has made, which he has made his own through the blood of Jesus, his son. I know that after I leave, fierce wolves will come among you and they will not spare the flock. 
The time will come when some men from your own group will tell lies to lead the believers away after them. Watch. Then after remember and watch then and remember that with many tears day and night I taught every one of you for three years. And here's what he's saying. Sometimes false teachers will rise up in the church to teach you a false doctrine, to make you promises that God never made, to get you to compromise your faith. Here's why it's important to watch out for false teaching. Because we have, the God, we have a God who is a God of truth. We have a God who is a God of truth. This whole idea of cheap grace, all of these messages about Use God for your own gain. If you do this, God is going to do this for you. If you just hold on, God is going to give you this. If you just give a certain amount of money, God is going to give you a job promotion. If you just live right, God is going to give you the woman of your dreams. If you just Wake up every morning and say these things. God is going to give you whatever your words say. If you just do this, God will do this. Guess what? That's a lie. Because sometimes you can give faithfully to God and still be in a struggle. Sometimes you can live right, hold yourself, keep yourself, uh, uh, abstain from the world, and still suffer. You can live right and life still be hard. But you got to remember, you're not just living right so that life can be hard. You're actually showing people what it looks like to follow Jesus. And in the same, at the same time, you're keeping in mind that there is a better tomorrow that is coming, that he promises greater than what we're falling for today. And so all I'm trying to say to you is this, is that what God promises to us is better than anything that we can compromise with. Don't believe what the world gives you and don't believe this false, fake rendition of Christianity that makes everything about what you can get out of God. And that's all we have on our timelines is false teachers. This is not to say that we go around calling out pastors and preachers and all this other nonsense. Doesn't mean that we get on social media and get into theological debate and argument. Doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is become so familiar with the truth that you never fall for what is fake. So here's what Jesus says in verse 16. Repent. If you've been compromising, repent. He says, I'll come to you quickly and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. This is how serious Jesus takes compromise and false teaching. That he will judge us. It leads down to a path of destruction. When the Israelites fell for Balaam's tricks, 20-some thousand odd people died right there in the wilderness. And oftentimes we think that because we are allowed a long leash, God is turning a deaf ear and a blind eye. That's fool's goal. He's not. He's fully aware of where we compromise. And this is a call for us to not compromise our faith. But there's good news. If we read verse 17, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I'll also give a white stone And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. So let me tell you something. If you're not a Bible reader, that's okay. In the Old Testament, there's a story of God's people, the Israelites. Israel was in the wilderness. But before they were in the wilderness, God brought them out of a place called Egypt, out of bondage. For us, bondage is when we're slaves to sin. Jesus, like Moses, led them out of Egypt. Jesus has led us out of our Egypt, right? They're led out, but they're not 
taken directly into the promised land, they're in a place called the wilderness. They're no longer where they were familiar, where they knew when their meals were going to happen, when, they, when, they, when everything was routine for them. They're now in the wilderness. And God brings them in the wilderness not to punish them, but to teach them to depend on him. And so when they're hungry, he gives them manna. It's supernatural food that falls from heaven. Why would God do that? So when they were eating and enjoying it, they would not give credit to the Egyptians and they wouldn't give credit to themselves. They would only be able to say, this could only be the Lord's doing. So God is feeding them manna. He also says, I'm going to give you a white stone. A white stone was something that they handed athletes after they won the game. And he says, you're going to have a new name and inscription on it. Here's what I'm trying. Here's what he's trying to say. He's trying to say this, that whatever you, whatever sacrifices you make, Whenever you don't compromise, even if it looks like you should compromise, even if you have been compromising, even if you're used to compromising, even if this is what your life is now and you're, you're caught in this sin and you can't get out and you've been compromising, he's saying, wake up, lift your head, open your eyes. The truth of the matter is, if you would just hold fast to your faith, I have everything that you need. My provision is better. He says this whole idea of cultural, that the culture tells you, I'm just trying to be the best version of myself. You know what he says in verse 17? This is amazing. Here's what he says in verse 17. This is so beautiful. Here's what he says. He says, I will also give a white stone and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. And what he's trying to say to them is this, that you will be the best version of yourself that you could have ever imagined. Do you know that the goal of our faith is to be conformed completely to the image of Christ? He's saying, when you're faithful to me in the end, you will finally be the person that you've always wanted to be. But that can only come through this narrow path with me. If you are missing, if you feel like you're missing something, if you're compromising, he's saying this, I have everything that you need. I'm not trying to keep anything away from you, but I promise you that what I have for you is far better than what you can get on your own. Saints, God is not trying to take anything from us. He's trying to give us more than we could ever imagine. But we have to trust him. Here's what it says in 1 John 3 and 2, and I'm done. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. There will come a day when you will no longer be in your struggling state. There will come a day when you are no longer wrestling with sin. There will come a day when you will not lack any, you will have everything that you need. But the only way to get to that point is to be faithful now. And everything right now that promises you to satisfy you, even if it's temporary, if it's through uh, financial, if it's through your career or through some success, or if it's through, if it's through sexuality, all of that is just shortchanging you. It's going to promise you temporary pleasure right now, but in the end, it's destruction. You may have pain now, but in the end, it's going to be blessing. These are the choices that we have, brothers and sisters. The point of the promises of God is that believers have no reason to accommodate to the world or seek the world's favor, given everything that we already have in Christ. Last scripture, and I'm done for real. He paints many pictures in the book of Revelation of the new heavens and the new earth. This beautiful picture. Um, just a little side note, this is for free. won't charge you for this. Oftentimes people think we go up to heaven and we're just going to go in heaven. We're going to be up in heaven. We're going to just be up here and he's going to obliterate the earth. That's not true. We are going up. Dead in Christ is going to be caught up in the rapture and go up. But guess what happens after that? We're coming back down. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And everything will be as it was supposed to be. 
And I said that to say this to you. There's a beautiful picture that he gives us in Revelation 22, 1 through 3, and it says this. Then he showed me, this is John's vision of what happens in the new heaven and new earth. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will worship him. Well, there was only one problem that happened that got us in this, uh, this, 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 this rendition of the world that we're in right now. If you remember the garden, God told them not to do one thing. What did he tell them not to do? Don't eat from this tree. That's it. You can have all the other stuff. They was like, nah, we want that one, bruh. And we've been in a perpetual downfall ever since then. But here in this picture, we see a vision that the tree of life and everything else is back in its place as it should have been. All we've been doing is trying to get back to this place. That's what, that's, what you're, that's what you falling to temptation is really about. You're just trying to get back to Eden. You're just, you're just trying to get back to the way things really were. Well, he says this, if you're faithful, one day we'll get back to that place together. But in the meantime, we can't compromise. You have a responsibility to show the world what a relationship with God looks like. We give them a picture and a glimpse of the goodness of God. And I promise you this, because God does. The end of the movie, the end of the story is going to be far better. But we've got to remain faithful. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.